Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership role yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, I'm pleased to say that on today's programme, on what is a warm day here in the capital, we're joined by a former Olympian in Dr. Catherine Bishop. Uh, Dr. Catherine is also a freelance speaker, facilitator and consultant on leadership and performance, trading under the Cath Bishop Leadership Development brand. Um, She is a former diplomat for the Foreign and Commonwealth Office and authored her own book titled The Long Win Outside of Her Olympic Rowing Exploits. Um, Catherine, um, thank you for joining us on the show today and it's a real pleasure having you with us. Us. Great to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. Yes, likewise, Catherine. Um, certainly is a lovely day for it as well. And um, on today's podcast, um, it's going to be a little bit different from the norm because there's a particular element of leadership I'd like to address with uh, someone of your background, and that's competitiveness, specifically winning. Mm. And we are taught at a young age, aren't we, that winning is all that counts, and that's a message that's really drummed into us. And given your background as an Olympian, I'm sure that's something you'll know all about. Um, but this isn't now just isolated to sport, is it? In all aspects of life, be it academia, be it applying for jobs, applying for university, it seems to be that life is a competition. And the better we can compete, the more we'll succeed. And if you don't compete, you simply don't succeed. In today's day and age, though, where we are becoming more aware of mental health and well-being, is this quite a damaging mentality to have, do you think? And is there indeed any truth in this idea that everything is a competition? I think it's uh, it's a great question we should all be asking. It's, it's become very extreme, and as we've become more competitive, we've actually become much narrower in the way that we behave, in the way that we explore potential. In you know, we we shut down lots of possibilities of collaborating to find better ways forward, and yet we face more complex issues than ever before. Um, you know, it is damaging for, for mental health, but it's actually damaging for, for performance for um, working out our potential because that isn't something we can do on our own. And if we see competition, if we define it in a way where it's us outdoing our peers, trying to beat, trying to destroy even those around us, that's the language we often hear that goes with it, then all we're going to do is hold ourselves back and those around us when really we need to be thinking about how we can um, build diverse teams and bring all our ideas to find the best solutions together. And quite often on this programme, I've sort of had the debate with business leaders as to whether leadership is sort of an innate human thing that we're born good at, or is it something that's essentially a learned behaviour and we pick up those traits along the way. And when we think about our obsession with winning, is that simply a human desire that we're born with because that feeling of reaching the pinnacle sort of fuels the dopamine, it fuels the adrenaline, or is it more of a learned thing, do you think, that we're sort of taught that winning is the only way? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question because there's a real myth hiding in there. And lots of people tell me, oh, it's just how we are. We're wired to win. But in fact, only a part of us is wired. So you mentioned that sort of short-term system of dopamine addictions where, you know, we want to hit our targets or we want to win a race and we get that sort of short-term high. But then it doesn't last very long and we immediately want it again. We immediately want it again. And what we're doing is we're using the addictive part of our brain, 
we didn't usually we don't usually think of addictive behaviour as particularly positive. But that's in effect what we're doing. We get diminishing returns if we kind of continue down that route and we certainly don't get any fulfilment. We're also operating at quite a shallow level and what we're ignoring is the part of our brains that responds in a much deeper way when we're doing things that have meaning, that have purpose to them. The rational part of our brains that can then think about longer term good, that can um, connect with some of the bigger issues really that we're facing rather than just thinking about the next race, the next deadline, the sort of short term piece, when, which leaves us never tackling the, the bigger issues. And when we tap into this sort of more intrinsic side of ourselves, intrinsic motivation, then we also find we can be much more creative, we can be much more resilient, we can be much more collaborative. So in effect, by obsessing with this very narrow definition of winning being just that, that next target, the next race, the next kind of bonus, the next small incentive, and we're actually shutting off part of our brain and part of how we're wired that would actually help us to be much more effective. Yeah, I think there's a couple of really important points raised there, especially on the negative side of this sort of just solely winning mentality, because when we do win and we do reach that pinnacle, it's almost just all downhill from there, isn't it? And the aftermath may not be as expected, and that can lead to mental health and sort of motivational challenges. And striving to win as well, rather than collaborate, it's not that mentality that is capable of solving the productivity conundrum, is there? Because we're living in this culture, and productivity is still in many ways within the doldrums. So clearly that isn't the way forward. Well, you would think that we would be able to reach that conclusion. I know the number of organizations I've seen who say we've got a winning mindset. We want everyone to be number one. We're really clear. We want to be the winners, the best in the sector. Uh, but we've got this problem of engagement over here. And, you know, that's not really shifting. And, and somehow we don't always connect up the two. And they need to be connected because what's happening is just simply wanting to be number one. It's meaningless to people. They need to be able to connect to, you know, that sense of purpose, the why, why their team exists, why they do the job they do. You know, to give them that connection to something that matters that will then help them to be engaged and much more resourceful in the work they do. So, you know, it's quite self-defeating, this sort of obsession with, with winning, you know, defined in such a narrow way. I think it kind of you know, distracts us from, from actually getting on with exploring and learning and developing and experimenting, all of which is much more conducive to performance. And just for sort of those business leaders, perhaps, that are tuning into this, um, how can we actually put winning aside and focus on working collaboratively? Um, If we sort of think about this in the context of the here and now, we've seen during the COVID-19 pandemic that between competitors, especially in the quest for a vaccine, sharing research and sharing intellectual Mm. capital is something that has been done. So that more collaborative approach, it is possible. I mean, it's the only way when you face a really massive, complex challenge like that. I mean, no single scientist has the answer. No single person has the answer to solving environmental challenges. No single person has the answer to, yes, you know, global health, solving global trade issues, social inequality. So, you know, it's absolutely critical that we put that first. So we have to prioritize that kind of behavior. When I was writing The Long Win, you know, I could see all these examples of winning kind of going wrong. The winners not feeling good about what they were doing or, or actually finding their performance drops after the win, finding that people aren't engaged, finding that performance isn't um, sustainable uh, and, and actually not feeling very fulfilled by what they're achieving. I thought, right, we, we really need to redefine, reframe how we see success. And I see three elements to this. The first is getting good clarity on the big picture, on our purpose, on what matters. 
So not just clarity of the next deadline, you know, a profit and loss um, account, uh, you know, a few metrics. It's actually a whole layer of clarity about why we're doing something and how we want to approach it. So how we want to work as teams, you know, how, how we want today to be successful when it's not guided by an outcome. What are the things that we want to do, our mindset, our behaviors, the way we connect with others. So to get really clear on the how and the why, when I find often we're very much just focusing on what to do next, the next task, you know, without really situating it in that, those kind of broader terms. The second thing is to have a constant learning mindset where success is basically learning. Success is constantly developing, exploring, trying out new things, allowing people to grow within their role. If we're doing that, we're fueling performance. We're fueling the results that come. But we're, we're kind of living in the present, if you like. We're investing in who we are and, and making sure we're not cutting down our options by simply trying to win the next race, the next whatever it is that we're measuring. And the third mm. element is those connections, the human relationships, prioritizing that in everything that we do. I find, again, we often have a task focus, that we're putting the task first and sort of slotting in people after that. We need to reverse that because nothing happens unless we are in teams working together successfully. So let's prioritize that piece, the way that we work with others, the quality of the interactions that we have how we want to go about organizing our meetings, coming to decisions together. If we get good at the way we connect with others, then actually it makes those tasks much more effective the way we go about them. We learn as we go, and we're on a constant improvement curve. The clarity, constant learning, and connection. It's the three C's, isn't it, that you talk an awful lot about within the long win, and it's a fantastic read as well, by the way, for all listeners tuning into this. would certainly encourage you to uh, read it. And just thinking about sort of your own career trajectory um, as well, Catherine, um, of course, you began your career as an Olympian, and as you've sort of moved towards your sort of diplomatic career and now being a keynote motivational speaker, do you think personally you've sort of gone on that transformative journey of moving away from an overwhelming desire to win to that sort of more grounded and pragmatic way of viewing success? So I have sort of thought about it both kind of personally and professionally because I thought actually I was trying to make sense really of that Olympic career and, and that sort of sense of, well, I didn't win everything, so has it all been a failure? Uh, you know, I have an Olympic silver medal. You know, is, is that of value in a world where only winning counts? So I kind of left trying to make sense of that 10 years of my life as a, as a high-performance athlete. But I kept seeing the theme crop up everywhere else. You know, as a parent, I see in schools this obsession with winning league tables and getting A-star grades right. and all of these things that don't actually seem to be developing great leaders for the future. Um, you know, I saw in diplomacy the need to make sure that we frame success as a win-win um, uh, situation and whenever we're in a zero-sum game where in a negotiation I only get success if I got what I want and you lose and you don't then we never got sustainable outcomes we never got to a position that moves the situation forward so again I encountered winning in a different way and now my work speaking but also as an executive coach and working at, at business schools and director organizations developing leaders I see again this winning mentality so it's the fact that I've come across it in lots of different um, realms of life that made me really question because um, I could see each time it was actually holding us back but also that multi those multiple perspectives enabled me to kind of make sense of what's going on and think actually we need to reframe this because we aren't getting the best out of ourselves 
We're not, certainly. And if we sort of view proactive collaboration as the key to getting more out of ourselves as humans, and we will indeed need that collaboration to tackle the great challenges that humans face, such as the pandemic that we've discussed already, uh, climate change um, as well. Um, I suppose to sort of really embrace proactive collaboration, we need a change of mindset, don't we? So where should that sort of change of mindset, priority and behaviour start for you? Mm. I always think it comes back to how we frame success. What does winning look like? If winning involves doesn't involve me sort of interacting well with my colleagues, if there's no kind of measure of that, there's no um, you know acknowledgement in that in what we're trying to achieve, then I've got no you know I'm not going to do it. So I think we need to draw a picture of success that is absolutely putting people and teams and collaboration and connections. You know, at the heart, this is when we're working well, this is what it looks like. So I think we need to set out that vision of success. We then need to be looking for that, rewarding that, um, you know, acknowledging that, developing that, investing in that. So it's a part of everything that we do. This isn't extra to what we do currently. It's about reframing how we work at the moment so that we think about the quality of interactions within meetings. We don't just think about the agenda. We think about the people that are in the meeting Mm. and what we can get from them. You know, again, we help people to, you know, not just say, look, these are the the kind of targets you have to hit, but actually, you know, this is the impact I want you to have on your team, or this is the psychological safety I want you to create as a leader, or this is the the kind of network that I want you to build. You know, that's what I'm looking for. So we start to see these elements of, you know, as as being part of success in ourselves, and then we start to see the benefits. We start to kind of realize that this is actually helping us to do all the things that we were doing anyway, but we're increasing the quality, if you like, rather than focusing on on quantity. But I think mm. to get us thinking in that way, we need to, you know, depict that vision of success in the future, but also success on a daily basis. So, you know, when I'm not hitting outcomes, I'm not winning races, what makes today good? Is it just getting what that list of tasks done? Or is it actually something about how I interact with my colleagues, how we connect? You know, let's be reviewing that, getting feedback on these elements, connecting constantly to the why, changing those, shifting the conversations, the context, the situation of each meeting, of each interaction, each conversation we have. And it's a good moment in time to think about changing that mentality, isn't it? Because we've seen an issue with the COVID-19 pandemic that isn't a finite problem and can't just be won or beaten. It isn't something that's just going to go away like that. And it requires that longer win thinking that you talked about there, that more meaningful sense of purpose, focusing on learning, focusing on working together and indeed prioritising those human connections. And I think we've seen some incredible examples of that over the last 16 months as business has come together to innovate and adapt and pivot um, at an unprecedented scale. And I think those relationships have become stronger within a lot of organisations, haven't they? I think where people have prioritized that, then that has been the case. And, you know, I mean, I could never have dreamed of this sort of context in which the concept of long win would, would, would arrive. And, you know, in a way I felt it was an uphill battle, but, you know, in fact, sort of COVID has helped us to get a different perspective on what matters, to take a step back, to reevaluate things, you know, in a really tough, tough way. It's affected us all differently. So we know that we can't have a one size fits all approach to things. So it is challenging the way we've managed, the way we've led. And I think in many times that has helped us to think, well, actually, you know, bottom line, I've got to look after the people in my organisation or, you know, we won't exist in in a few years' time. Um, so I, I think, you know, it's been a painful 
um, catalyst for change, but actually, you know, a helpful one at the same time in making us think about that kind of deeper level of what really matters, where our values are, and, and you know, why we're doing the things we're doing. Exactly right. And just uh, for the listeners tuning in today, we are recording this podcast on uh, the 20th of July 2021. So we are, of course, one day after the uh, restrictions, all of the COVID restrictions were lifted in the country of England. Uh, but the pandemic itself is far from over. And I do want to sort of talk a little bit about that, Catherine, just before we wrap up on today's show, because I'm conscious that we're starting to run short of time. Um, we are entering a little bit of an uncertain period. We don't know whether we will be able to leave COVID restrictions behind decisively. But what come what may over the next few months with the pandemic, what are your priorities for the future as we hopefully embrace the challenges of the post-COVID world? And indeed, where do you sort of see yourself and your mission trying to get this message out by this time next year? Mm. So I, I think people are realising that we are going to be working in a different way. Mm. And again, that's an ongoing thing, this sort of sense of returning back to normal or back to what was. You know, I think I think most people realise that isn't going to happen anymore. And, and it, you know, when have we ever gone backwards? You know, life is about exploring and having new experiences and growing as a result of it and realising there are better ways to do things. So I think it is about how much we can be on the front foot to, you know, co-create together you know, what works for each of our organisations, for each of our teams, it's going to be more complex answers. We can't just sort of have a, a rule, you know, a, a two-line policy about how we want to work. Um, but I think that's a lot healthier, it's a lot more human um, and, and will enable us to create workplaces where people can thrive much more. So I welcome the increasing conversations that people are having and, and reaching out to me about, you know, what, what does leadership look like? What do our workplaces look like? How do we address these issues when there isn't a clear answer? And as much as anything, you know, from my side, it's that message of saying there doesn't have to be a right or wrong answer here. We need to shift away from that thinking anyway to, you know, exploring what works and adapting. Again, this, this pandemic has, has improved our adaptability because that's mm. the only way we could survive. And that's what we needed anyway in a world of fast-paced change with lots of technological advancements, lots of kind of challenging complex social issues um, there are no right wrong answers anymore it is always about adapt and learn try new things out adapt and learn and having that as an ongoing process so there's you know there is no finite point success isn't a certain set of results it, you know it, it's actually what it's that ongoing development of how we are managing and learning through the situation you know really harnessing the strengths of people within our organization so that requires a different quality of conversation again and that really is setting a different tone and different culture in the way we work. Yeah, it's certainly food for thought for leaders within all walks of life going forward, isn't it? And it'll be interesting to see sort of how this discussion and how this transformation does transpire. And I think actually, Catherine, as we start to sort of understand more in the coming months as to how this does sort of take shape, I'd relish the opportunity to have you back on the show with us and discuss sort of further how far we've come in the time between our discussions, because I've thoroughly enjoyed having you on the program with us today. It's been a real eye opening experience some real fascinating stuff. And I'm sure that the listeners also share that sentiment as well. Great, great to be here. Lots more to discuss, for sure. Yes, absolutely, Catherine. And just lastly, before we do wrap up on the programme today, please do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on as well, because we're not quite out of the woods with this situation yet, but I'm confident that hopefully better days are ahead of us. Absolutely. 
it was a pleasure for me to welcome Dr. Catherine Bishop, former Olympic champion on today's programme. And uh, coming next on the show, um, we'll be joined by England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hat-trick hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. Um, Sir Jeff, of course, remains the only man to this day to have netted a hat-trick in the final of a FIFA World Cup after his famous treble in England's 4-2 victory over the West Germans at the old Wembley Stadium back in 1966, which saw England lift the Jules Rimet Trophy for the first and only time to date. Um, Sir Jeff will be discussing some of the leadership highlights of his career, as well as leaving a message of thanks for our wonderful NHS who have been so fantastic over the last 16 months and that will be coming up on the program next and now ladies and gentlemen without further ado we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in sir jeff hurst who joins us on the program today um sir jeff good morning good morning how are you very good thank you it certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it isn't it it is the weather's pretty good at the moment i hope may it last Absolutely. Thunderstorm. It's, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, again, that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and Goodness me, that's how it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player, a uh, tremendous goal scorer. And if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved, uh, it would be someone like Harry, who's a f- fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England. So absolutely. And I want England to do well. I mean, I I'm want England to be successful. I, I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter. And I just, I really want the country to do well in, in anything, in, in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So I will not want to bury it. And I'll be absolutely, I will be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England, England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my. Uh, my achievements about the team being successful, whether I got two or three, in one sense is, is uh, wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966 when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand. We all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... Um, I, I've, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking. Um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the 
part and he was waving as the whistle in his mouth but waving play on with both arms indicating quite clearly of course that the game was nearly finished so when I got to the edge of the box I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished I'm thinking if the game's nearly finished I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left but I'm thinking if it goes beyond the, beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, hand still Kowski the German keeper by that time surely the game's got to be over but as I always jokingly say uh, I miss hit it and it, and it flew in but I was thinking about wasting time, not so much about, uh, but certainly what I was going to do, which, which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours. And it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope, taking a punt, can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. Yes, I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game was unfinished, but that, that that philosophy is right. You're just going to, uh, there's an element of, of, of risks, uh, of making it's going to be a control on that risk, not, not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life. An element of maybe doing something you're not too sure about, but sometimes in life you've, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long-term leadership. If you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances, I don't think that's, where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague, Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships, but that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service, and we've been supporting the Health Service and applauding their efforts, and we're hanging out thank you banners, displaying drawings of rainbows, very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh, absolutely. Particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing. And I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what, what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, whether there's enough, enough funding for it and, and so on. But really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital in uh, important it says to have a, a health service that works efficiently and to see individually the, the amount of people who are interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on and and also into what was also for me fantastic all these people from different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same you you union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. Uh, very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were, remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, 
through this pandemic, then the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective. Uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS. Fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, ro- the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that, I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about coming to the, the, the fortunate in your life to be at, at the time when I was physically at my at my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, and clever enough, and technically good enough to, to be around to be a, a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he is, he is the best coach he has worked with. And that's, just, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alfred Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill, making sure those players were disciplined uh, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined move from one to the other. Uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a you've got a, a coach who's a team coach who's a teacher effectively, and you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Al, who then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. Managing people, uh, different characters, and um, all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over different characters, strengths, players into a unit to play for uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic. Uh, people in my life, in my in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh, yes, I think it's, yes, I think it's, Leadership's important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management. They have it. 
but I think um, you you can learn if you're sensible enough to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach, what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think, well, like, that was a really stupid thing to do, and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes. But it's learning. It's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life uh, and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. Mm, completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, during your Absolutely. conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier, even if you were toing and froing between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. We, in in those uh, medieval days, you there were, you weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play. You um, in our road in Greenway, as it was called in Chelmsford, we that three or four lads <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac, it's not a big long road um, with a round with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway. A because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B because there weren't as many cars. No, there as many cars in those days. So uh, we played acro- across the st- across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two foot wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal, and so it's always a free to play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in. Uh, flying, you know, and gl- making balsa wood gliders, and uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, uh, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they um, took us to court, and uh, we actually got fined. This is absolutely true. We got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the street, and uh, we were actually. But that, that happens. That happens. You'll, you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We, we, I was born in Ashton under line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably, I was the eldest of three, when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was had a big influence, going back to that third gold in the World Cup in many years in the back garden 
and women moved on to it. We moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford, and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot. And so I, at that time, and even today, it's, it's uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two footed, and I was maybe not as two footed as. Bobby Charlton, even Jack Charlton, his brother, didn't know which was his best foot. He, he was fantastic. But I was pretty pretty um, um, two-footed. And a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He... he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leading age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial w- with them. And uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school leaving age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or uh, you know writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. The problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well, and I was messing about, as I, I kindly put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early, early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then, or centre-half at school. Um, he uh, said, I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game, and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. Uh, one game, uh, one game, the sort of went messing about between the two. I had the one first-class game for Essex, at, as you said, Egberth in um, in Liverpool. And I think I got naught and, and naught not out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game, funny. I thought a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game um, the Lancashire up up in their territory. But that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say, make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till, what, September? Whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season, early games. For those two or three years, extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other. Uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it and from a standing start I think my first season around I think September, October I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool and I think I played about 23, 24 games no 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals like one in two from a standing start for a mm. midfield player so um, quite changed dramatically um, that was 60 62, 63 season the three years before the World Cup And when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, 
of course not related to your own career is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area and one goalkeeper that you played with not just for England but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career was Gordon Banks. I have to confess as a boyhood Port Vale supporter I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there and I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well but what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funnily enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and obviously it's showing a lot of videos of Banksy programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls and not just tipping balls. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely, lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met, sometime he'd you, have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remembered what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky, very lucky, of course, to have that kind of. And you need that kind of quality um, as a world class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banks is one of the world class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world class player, in, but in the squad, and Ray Wilson, our left back, I'd always argue was a world class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup. Some world class players, and Banks, he was up there, w- w- not with the best, the best for me. And another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them describe trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flat. It was a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course, over the years, hopefully that, that had come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously he acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was, I was initially first fairly surprised, I think it's, <laughs> And certainly, my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was uh, which is, I can see in myself. I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Green and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at, at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Waddington saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, 
in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight, and uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to to stay with me. What he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across the, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player. But I'd compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mould, mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times. Uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months. And I think he, it was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in America, it was the early days of... Um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Seattle. So it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham that we it was a great time with the club, and I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years, and it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They won, of course, the uh, the the League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi final. So it was a marvellous time for, for that particular club. And very close, we actually, I think we played Ajax in the, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on, on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I was I wasn't at my best, and I thought it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge, and I think uh, West West Brom actually got up that year. But I made very little contribution to that success the club had. So um, yes, it, uh, the, the American experience was just fantastic. I never saw it long term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters, and my wife and she was. Uh, pregnant with our third daughter over there, so that was that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a just a. I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about I think a month. I think it was, and I enjoyed the experience, and I earned a few quid, and I think it paid for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. New, new kitchen. <laughs> So it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that? you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's, I think the, that kind of, uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered sort of comes maybe, uh, maybe longer, maybe in longer, not some sort of immediately after you've finished playing, but in the long term when, um, uh, and I always joke with people introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend and, and I always jokingly say you, you only start being called a legend when you're over 70 
And I think the, the whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever, it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not not certainly, um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody necessarily looks at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has a natural characteristic. You can learn about management or mental courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alf Ramsey, because I take it into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if they're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss you move them out. And I think that's the simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alf Ramsey period. Even some of the great players I felt should have been in the squad, possibly at, at the time without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything and they're, they're left out or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, even, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person. Didn't want to be part of of the group. So that that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. Mm, ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela. In fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff, thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.